This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Facebook Live. I'm supposed to do these joints weekly. I've been on the go, as you know, and so uh, I'm excited to join you today. So what I'm doing now is uh, pulling up the uh, Facebook page that has some of the topics that you all dropped in there. I'm going to try to follow along here, but honestly, if you go to a previous post that I put up there and I said, hey, there's a lot to talk about tonight, uh, it, then that is going to be the best place to drop your comments in. All right, so first things first. How many of you have watched the Black Church PBS special? There's a total of four hours. Uh, basically had a two hours one night and two hours another night. Um, I have been eagerly anticipating this series ever since I first heard about it a couple of months ago. It's uh, put on by Henry Louis Gates Jr., who many of you will be familiar with. He often does uh, specials for PBS. I think his biggest one recently was called The African Americans, Many Rivers to Cross. And it was just sort of a historical survey of the black experience in the United States, probably North America more generally. And um, so he's done these kind of documentaries again and again on various topics. He also does the Finding Your Roots program, where you trace the gene genealogies and whatnot. So, so he's well known in these spaces. He's a scholar at Harvard. And uh, if you go on Twitter, if that's your thing, then you can look up the hashtag BlackChurchPBS, hashtag BlackChurchPBS. Scores of tweets about it. I was live tweeting the first night. And number one, you know, so my brief re reflections, number one, I'm just glad something like this exists. Like it was such a needed topic, a topic we needed to address, especially from a historical perspective, right? You can look at this sociologically, you can look at this theologically, you know, what is the black church? But I'm glad we did a historical approach. Overall, the my, my sort of um, opinion about it is, on what it addressed, it was well done. He got a variety of scholars, uh, some of the most well-known names in the field, including Judith Weisenfeld, Anthea Butler, uh, Martha S. Jones, uh, you name it, just a, a, a sort of a who's who of black church history. And I thought they did a very good job of highlighting the fact that as important and as strong as the black church has been, on racial justice and civil rights, uh, the black church has a whole lot to do in terms of uplifting and supporting uh, black women. And so I thought uh, they had a good mix of voices there and they highlighted that, at least just brought it up in the conversation because if it's a church, it's full of people and it's full of sinners. And so no church, no branch of the church is gonna be perfect. And that's uh, one area in particular that they brought up. So, um, but the other broad uh, aspect is it was a four hour series total. We needed like 16 hours. <laughs> so, so I think what, what this series does is highlights the diversity of black Christianity. It highlights the diversity of um, the black Christian tradition. Right. So we sort of use this term, the black church, it's shorthand. And we know, you know, if, if, if you paid any attention to um, black Christian experiences, we know that it's, it's very diverse, right? Extremely diverse. It's not monolithic at all. What this series highlighted is that, but um, also it left out a lot. Now, I'm sympathetic because I wrote The Color of Compromise as a historical survey. 
And there's way more that you leave out than you're able to include. So I understand choices have to be made, but I think it highlights the need to actually delve in deeper. So um, in particular, some of the gaps, uh, oh, Pentecostalism, Pentecostalism is huge. It's huge in um, the black Christian tradition, but it's huge globally as well. And so uh, they didn't even mention um, uh, Seymour in 1906, Azusa Street Revival, which I do cover uh, briefly in The Color of Compromise. Um, there are, from the series, you get the impression that pretty much every black Christian is either Methodist from the AME tradition or Baptist from one of the Baptist denominations, when there's a lot more to it than that, right? So uh, uh, someone made the point that uh, black Catholics were almost non-existent in that. And while you know, it's not a massive group historically. It's an important group, uh, and it's a it's a it's a it's an important expression of Black Christianity. Also, most of my life has been most of my education has been in Catholic schools. K through eight was Catholic school. Uh, undergrad at University of Notre Dame was a Catholic school, and so I have you know very strong connections there historically and educationally. And also it was um, Catholic schools, especially in undergrad, they had something called the Center for Social Concerns, which was sort of putting or applying Catholic social tradition uh, to real world issues of justice, which always stands out to me. I really didn't realize this till years later after graduation and reflecting on it, how very different, how, how much of a different approach that was than many white evangelical institutions that I've been a part of. So literally on campus, you have something called the Center for Social Concerns, talking about social justice, including racial justice, but it's certainly a lot around um, class and the poor. And that is part and parcel of the faith tradition, whereas in white evangelicalism, historically, they put up this artificial divide between the spiritual and the social, or at least selectively, right? Selectively, uh, they would put up a divide, particularly when it came to racial justice issues or economic uh, justice issues. And um, to have Catholicism, which is by no means perfect, but to have this social tradition embedded in the teaching, uh, for me, was transformative because I participated in many of the programs uh, for the Center for Social Concerns, which is what led me to the classroom, which is what led me to the Delta, which is what led me to history, which is what leads me here doing this Facebook Live with you today. So overall, I mean, uh, there's so much more to the story. There's so much more to be told. But boy, isn't it a, a, a good start? Aren't we glad this thing is out in the world? Here's the thing, though. I'm curious what the demographics were like. <laughs> you know what I mean? So who was watching it? So when you, when you have a series entitled The Black Church, obviously it's going to appeal to a lot of black people. My question is, how many white folks tuned in? You know, the, 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 the white folks who are part of this group, um, you might be more interested than sort of the typical uh, person because you're already sort of engaging in these conversations around racial justice. But it's one of those things where it's like the people who most need to learn about the black church are the people who look down on it or ignore it. Those are the people who, who, who really need to, to learn about the black church. And, um, you know, black folks, we were glad to see it. The other observation I had, and I put this on Twitter, was that I said, um, uh, as a as a academic historian of race and Christianity, my studied opinion is this, that any black person with any connection to the black church has an opinion on the black church. <laughs> any black person who has any connection to the black church has an opinion on the black church. So if you look, if you scroll through the comments on social media, boy, you'll have agreement, disagreement, jokes, arguing, everything, and everybody wants their sort of unique experience represented, including me, 
So another one of the things that was sort of missing, particularly in the commentary, and you wouldn't necessarily know this unless you know the scholars who are speaking and kind of their background, where they're coming from, their angles kind of a thing, is, you know, what of the black Christians who, like me, have been in and around white Christians a whole bunch, right? Now, so, so, so actually that's part of the black church experience too. One of the things that we say at The Witness is, um, we have two divisions. One is the BCC, the Black Christian Collective. The other is the Witness Foundation. Um, but particularly for the BCC, what we say is we are trying to put words to the expansive Black Christian experience. Put words to the expansive Black Christian experience, right? So, so, so it goes beyond a, 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 an institution. It goes beyond a brick and mortar building. It goes beyond a particular uh, congregation or denomination, but Black Christians, wherever we are to be found, including in majority white spaces, but also um, black Christians who interpret the Bible differently, right? Um, so, so, so what I wanted to see represented was the saints at New Light Missionary Baptist Church in the Arkansas Delta, or New Covenant Missionary Baptist in Clarksdale, Mississippi, right? Because that is a sort of a, a, a down-home, grassroots, people-in-the-pew perspective on Christianity that I think is really the heart and soul of the black church. And, and there's all kinds of reasons I get there, but, but I think of somebody like Fannie Lou Hamer, right? She's not somebody who's in the academy. She does have a very sophisticated theology when you, when you drill down and, and, and listen to what she's saying. She was birthed in the rural black Baptist church, where are those folks represented in our narratives about the black church? Because it can't all be up here, you know what I'm saying? Can't all be the scholars and the intellectuals and so forth. And if it is them speaking, are they speaking on behalf of those people? That's where, where I'm wondering. So I, I highly encourage you to watch uh, the black church PBS special. The next thing I wanna get to, I was thrilled y'all, I was honored uh, to, to have um, an article published in CNN where a, a good chunk of it was um, an interview with me. So there's a journalist named John Blake. He's a black guy at CNN. He's got a long resume, been there a while. And he reached out to me. It was, it was my first uh, time talking with him. We had a great conversation and, and the way he structured the article is his, he used my story as kind of the glue to talk about the broader black church and really sort of um, introduce this black church PBS special. So from the first paragraph, he says, the Reverend Jamar Tisby, y'all probably don't know this, I'm, a, I'm ordained through my local church, very long story, but he called me, the Reverend Jamar Tisby describes himself as a quote, theological mutt, that's what I told him. He was baptized in a Southern Baptist church. Y'all don't know this about me. So I get the occasional random comment like, I have a lot of thoughts about the Southern Baptist Convention, its history and its current leadership. Not a fan. Just not a fan. That's not to talk about individual congregations or individual people, but in terms of the leadership and some of the formal actions they're taking, not a good trajectory, y'all. And, and, and so I'll say things like this, and people... Uh, <laughs> I've got the preacher sweat rag, right, Tyler? I need to get it, though. Um, what I'm saying, uh, when I'm critiquing, let's say, the SBC, people will be like, you're not even part of the SBC. Why, do you, why, are, you, why are you talking about this? You're an outsider. You're an outside agitator. That's some, some old uh, civil rights movement language to critique activists. What folks don't know, when I was nine years old, I was baptized in a Southern Baptist Convention church. SBC church. My one and only baptism has been in an SBC church. And uh, it was literally across the street from my house. And I don't mean nearby. I mean literally across the street. You cross the street and you're in the church parking lot. So that's where I got baptized. I got historic connections there. And the article goes on to say he was baptized in the Southern Baptist Church, joined a white non-denominational non congregation, and spent much of his time attending Catholic schools. That's just my testimony, y'all. I ain't ashamed, right? Uh, it is what it is. And um, 
But once he attended a small black Baptist church in the Mississippi Delta, he found a home. Located in a former warehouse, the church had concrete floors, metal folding chairs for pews, and an elderly congregation of only about 12 people. None of that's an exaggeration. Uh, most of the churches in the Delta are small, kind of family church affairs. It'll be one extended family and maybe a few other people who show up on a Sunday. There are a few larger churches, but those are certainly the exception. And this church, I'm telling you, the average age was like 71. <laughs> and it was me and one other younger black person, millennial generation. And they didn't have any of the bells and whistles, right? Uh, this was... Uh, I mean, very reminiscent of the historic black southern rural church where, you know, you didn't have a, a big youth group. You didn't have full time pastors. You don't, you didn't, this church didn't even have musicians or instruments, but they had singing. And they would do it a cappella. And you would get these older saints who were born in the 30s and 40s and have lived through some things singing. And when they sang. Y'all, it was, it was like you could hear echoes of the ancestors. It was just so powerful. And I went to that Missionary Baptist Church for some years um, in the Delta, and it was, it was like a coming home. Uh, it was a beautiful thing and uh, gave me a great appreciation and respect for the black church. The other thing that has given me a great appreciation and respect for the black church is studying history. So, so here's my, my, my big point on the black church, besides the PBS special, besides this article in CNN, be on the lookout for the black church and black Christians to be a big part of the national story now and going forward. Has it been a big part? Yes. What I'm saying is be on the lookout for other people to actually finally notice Talk to black Christians and black, black church members, this is already well-known stuff. But what's happening now is I think you are going to see a lot more people on the national stage, which is to say a lot more white people sitting up and noticing, oh, the black church got something to say. Again, as diverse and broad as it is. But you've already seen the signs, right? It's, it's critical that we understand the significance of Raphael Warnock's election to the U.S. Senate in Georgia. He won a very tight runoff race against an, a, a, another person who professes Christ, Kelly Leffler, who represents what I would interpret as Christian nationalism. So you got Christian nationalism pitted against the historic black Christian tradition. And you've got a leader in Raphael Warnock who occupies the same pulpit at the church Martin Luther King Jr. helped lead, Ebenezer Baptist in Atlanta. I mean, you couldn't set up a better sort of American Christian juxtaposition than those two. And the fact that Warnock won, oh, you better believe that was because of his church connections on two levels. Number one, as a pastor, knowing how to communicate, listen to this man speak, listen to his, even just his advertisements, right? He knows how to communicate, but also uh, to be among the people, to shepherd the flock, to know the needs and concerns of, of regular folks in the pews, right? And to come alongside and identify those needs and speak to those needs, right? So there's a pastoral element to, to representing a people. But on another level, his victory was due to the organizing power of the black church. And that's what I think people are going to need to sit up and take notice of. Whether you're a Christian or not, however you feel about the black church or, or the black church tradition, the reality is that all racial justice runs through the black church. I think there was a, a, a question in some people's minds, uh, you know, is the black church salient? Is it relevant anymore um, to the degree that people perceived black Christians and black churches not being involved in the current civil rights movement, not being involved in current justice issues? It was irrelevant. Um, there are a couple of things. The Black Church PBS special brought this out in part two. Not every black church was involved in the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s. Even among black churches, it was still a minority that were actively involved. I mean, you have various degrees of involvement. 
Some churches would, you know, financially support the movement. Some churches would use their facilities and, 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 and allow people to meet there. Some churches pushed back against it, didn't like the civil rights movement, didn't want anything to do with it. And some churches were, were part of leading it. Um, but it was always a small number that was the most active, right? So, so, but, but, so, so amidst all of that, people are like, eh, you know, we can organize in different ways now. Is the black church still needed? Is it still relevant? Et cetera, et cetera. I just think more and more and more, we're going to see how relevant the black church really is. And we're going to see how important this tradition is, which is not to denigrate, you know, people who don't claim a faith tradition. It's not to denigrate any other religious tradition. It is simply to say that the black church is the oldest and longest continuously operating independent black institution we have. And it still remains a center for organizing. You want to get out the vote, you want to register people, you want to announce your candidacy for an office, you want to uh, tell people about your platform, you want to uh, distribute vaccine, all of that goes through the black church. It's still the central organizing unit that we have for all its problems and issues, for all its diversity. I'm not trying to paint a rosy picture here. I'm just saying, don't overlook it. All right, so let me move on to another topic here. Um, and I'll, I'll obviously drop your questions and whatnot. I'm going to shut up here in a minute. Uh, but I wanted to uh, get to a couple of things that I had highlighted so we talked about Black Church PBS, the written interview on the Federal Study Committee on Reparations. I don't know how many of you um, noticed this, but they held a hearing on reparations in the House of Representatives. So here's from an article on CNN. Slavery reparations are back in the national spotlight. A House Judiciary Subcommittee held a hearing this week to discuss establishing a federal commission to discuss establishing a federal commission that would explore how the US government might compensate the descendants of enslaved Americans. Um, lawmakers have been advocating for a federal effort to study slavery reparations for more than 30 years now to no avail. Um, why are we talking about reparations now? It said, uh, the most recent movement on the topic came this week when the House Judiciary Subcommittee on the Constitution, Civil Rights, and Civil Liberties heard testimony on a piece of legislation known as H.R. 40. Now, how many of you knew that I wrote about H.R. 40 in How to Fight Racism? Uh, in the section on reparations, I say specifically that one of the ways to advocate for reparations is to support H.R. Uh, uh, 40. This bill proposes the creation of a federal commission to study reparations and recommend remedies for the harm caused by slavery and the discriminatory policies that followed abolition. That commission would also consider how the U.S. would formally apologize for the institution of slavery. A study committee, a study commission is not reparations. Whatever work the study commission does, it's not actually going to pay out reparations, but it is a first and necessary step. Quit it, Tyler. Jamar running for Congress. He ain't slick. He, don't you put that evil on me, Ricky Bobby. Um, so, but it is a first step because listen to what they're, they're, they're going to do. It's going to um, recommend remedies, which would include the financial payout piece. Um, it would also consider how the U.S. would formally apologize for the institution of slavery. Can you believe we don't really have a formal apology from the federal government for race-based chattel slavery? That makes no sense. As you look at the landscape of U.S. history, the most violent, disruptive war in our history was over the issue of race-based chattel slavery and its fate in this nation. And after all the books, all the conversations, all the pictures, all the sermons, all the quotes, all the material that we have revealing 
the inhumanity, the dehumanization of race-based chattel slavery. There's still been no formal apology. Let's probe that. Why on earth, why wouldn't we have, why we wouldn't have a formal apology, which is just like words on a page, right? Why wouldn't we have that? Why haven't we, at, at least at the federal level, mustered the political will? Well, I'll give you a hint. The answer is not complicated. <laughs> you could say it in a word, racism. You could say it in two words, white supremacy. But we gotta, we gotta wrap our heads around how resistant some people, especially some very powerful people are to any idea that there's anything to apologize for. So there's another section in, in, in this article that talks about objections. What are the arguments against reparations? Um, as reparations were debated in the House this week, Republicans argued that such proposals were, quote, divisive, and that it would be, quote, unfair to punish white Americans today for their ancestors' mistakes. He goes on to say that Senator, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell opposed the idea in 2019 uh, and said, quote, none of us currently living are responsible for what he called America's original sin. If I hear another person say that talking about racism or talking about what to do to repair the harm that racism has done is divisive, y'all, I'm going to lose it. What's divisive is racism. What's divisive is white supremacy. What's divisive, as Lois pointed out, is white Christian nationalism. That's what's divisive. And talking about the problem isn't divisive. We're already divided. We're talking about how to repair and bring justice so that we can actually be united in a robust manner. Don't tell me about divisive. Ooh, don't talk to me. Uh -uh. Then it says, unfair to punish white Americans today for their ancestors' mistakes. So first of all, it's not a punishment. It's repair. It's restitution. It's not a punishment. And the fact that you view it as a punishment tells me a lot about how you view uh, racism in general and black people in particular, right? Here's another one, Mitch McConnell. None of us currently living are responsible. Micah Edmondson is a good friend of, of ours. Uh, he is a pastor planting a church in the Nashville area. So if you are in the Nashville area, check out Koinonia um, Church with Micah Edmondson and his um, uh, uh, incredible uh, wife, Christina Edmondson, Dr. Christina Edmondson. They're both doctors. Um, he says, you know, he's like uh, the analogy of, you know, getting a, well, what did he say? I'm trying to get his words right. You may not be guilty, but you're responsible. You may not be guilty, but you're responsible. So you may not be guilty of perpetuating or, or, or the exact actions of race-based child slavery. You didn't own or enslave people, right? But you are responsible for the legacy of that. It's almost as if you buy a used car and the previous owner didn't take any care of it, it's got dents, the, the fluids are low and need to be changed, the upholstery is ripped, or whatever, whatever. Now you own the car, you, you, maybe you inherited it, you own it. And you're responsible for whatever the condition the car is in, whether you did it or not. Now the ball is in your court and you are responsible. This ain't hard, y'all. This is not a cognitive issue. People are not actually having, I don't think, intellectual problems, understanding how the past relates to the present and how uh, even though we didn't commit the actual actions that were unjust, we are still responsible. That's not an issue. The issue is a refusal to take responsibility. The issue is a continued, subtle, but present white supremacy that says, black folks, you're responsible for your own problems. Whatever issues you're dealing with, it's your fault. 
<laughs> that ain't Bible, y'all. That ain't Bible. You know? Um, yes, there's personal responsibility. And, and I talk about that in the book. We're not advocating for people to act in foolish ways uh, without any sort of um, consequences or results from that. What we are saying is that as Christians, our first act and our first concern should be, how do we alleviate harm? What do we do to lead to flourishing? And particularly for Christians in the church, you know, what do we do to lead to repair and reconciliation, which is going to be based on truth and justice? You know what I mean? I could go on. Federal Study Committee on Reparations. But this is something, H.R. 40 is something you should Google. Look at the language in there. Um, just try to see, you know, learn a little bit more about it and are there ways that you can sort of support this moving through so that they can actually form this study commission. And it's going to be a long road, y'all. Uh, it's not like we're going to see checks in the mail for reparations anytime soon, but this would be a, a next step for that. So I'm going to shut up now and I want to, well, I'll keep talking, but I want to address your questions here. For the folks who commented on the original post, uh, I'm going to try to be brief here. Daniel Miller, can you comment on Ravi Zacharias or the secret abuse in evangelical circles? What is wrong with the system that this keeps happening? Man, look, first of all, um, I know this hurts. This is painful for people. I know a lot of people looked to RZIM, uh, his, his ministry for apologetics and resources and help. And it comes as a betrayal to the people who access his resources, um, but most especially for the victims who were gaslighted and stonewalled and had to sign NDAs and things of that nature. So I first want to acknowledge the pain of this moment and say that I don't and none of us should take it lightly. Uh, the second thing is there's a brand new article uh, at the religion news service where someone answers that question precisely. I'm going to try to pull it up here. I saw it on Twitter. Uh, if you have it, go ahead and drop it in the, the uh, comments here. But let me try to pull it up. It's a, it's a, it started as a Twitter thread and then uh, they made it into a full article. All right. This is by Sheila Gregor, G-R-E-G-O-I-R, -E and it says, is the evangelical view of sex at the root of our sex scandals? Is the evangelical view of sex at the root of our sex scandals? That's as much as I'll say about it. Um, there are people like Miss Sheila here who, who, who can comment much more knowledgeably on it, but I'll point you to that resource that's at the Religion News Service. Um, Somebody mentioned the 40 acres and a mule thing. So we've been talking about reparations. That was one of the um, most memorable sort of historical examples I put in the color of compromise. General Sherman issued field order number 15 that allotted uh, uh, plots of land from the mid-Atlantic down to northern Florida in um, 40 acre increments per family. And the tragic story of that is uh, black families had begun to work the land, and this was their means towards self-sufficiency and economic independence. Had we had that from the beginning, for these three million plus freed black people, some sort of uh, a, a, a pathway to economic independence, we would be in a completely different economic reality right now. Uh, but the reality was much of that land was rescinded as soon as the racist white supremacist president Andrew Johnson took over after the assassination of Lincoln. And then you get this form of economic exploitation in sharecropping or debt peonage that has kept peoples in cycles of poverty for generations. And I live in the Delta, can't say this enough. I see daily the generational effects of sharecropping, convict leasing, and all those things. So, so yeah, this is the power of history understanding that attempts were made at sort of restitution, at least economically, and uh, that's, it never, again, because of racists, 
and because of greed. Um, when people who are conscious, this is from Sahira Nash, I hope that I'm saying that right. Uh, when people who are conscious about changes for racial justice decide to leave their predominantly white churches, what next? I feel like there's nowhere to go along with some of my other friends that decided. Thank you so much for that question. That is the question right now, I think, right? What's next? So I think a lot of folks are awakening to the fact that the Christian spaces they're in ain't going to change. If you didn't know that, y'all, I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news. I'm not laying down a universal or a blanket statement, but I am saying that in the year of the Lord, 2021, after all we've done seen as far as racism, if your church or your church leadership is dragging their feet, I do not have a lot of hope that they're going to change anytime soon. And it may be time for you to leave. I don't know. But it's a question to ask. And um, I'll say this. This isn't canceling people. This is shaking the dust from your sandals and moving on to the next village. Because you've got something good to share with people. And there are other people who need you in community. There are other people who need your voice. And all this time and energy you spend staying in a place that refuses to change, that doesn't want to change, uh, you could be missing your ministry elsewhere. Just something to ponder. Now, the question was, what next? So, say you do leave. Um, unfortunately, there's not a ton of good options, right? There, there aren't a, enough churches that are getting it right on race um, for it to be real easy to find them wherever you are. I will say, this is another great opportunity to take another look at the black church. What are churches in your area you never really considered going to for whatever reason? Maybe because they're predominantly black or maybe they're predominantly made up of racial and ethnic minorities, uh, 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 you know, of some other group, uh, Asian American, Native American, Latin American, whatever it might be. Right. Um, these are churches uh, comprised of people on the margins and generally take a different approach to issues of justice. Um, the other thing is, I think this pandemic is highlighting just exactly what the church is. I'm a big fan of the local church, big fan of local congregations. But in a pandemic, when we're actually not able to physically meet, we've actually had to sort of expand and flex our definition of the church in very biblical ways. It's reminding us that the church at its core is the people of God. Not simply a place, but a people. And so the, the, the thing is, what next is find your people, which may not always be contained in a single congregation. It may be in the Pass the Mic Facebook group. It may be in this HT, HTFR book study group. It may be the group text. It may be sojourners along the way who you may not share the same space or place, but you share the same grace. You like that? <laughs> you may not share the same space or place, but you share the same grace. That is, you are like-minded, particularly on issues of racial justice, and that becomes your community. The, 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 the team at The Witness is like a church in the sense that I know these are my people. I know these are folks who, who get it and, and who are advocating for the right things. So, so you got to be you got to be creative and flexible along those lines. But just know you're not alone. You're absolutely not alone. Uh, go back and listen to the Pass the Mic episode called Don't Negotiate Your Dignity. Tyler slayed it on the mic, melted the mic on that one. Don't Negotiate Your Dignity, Pass the Mic podcast episode. Um, somebody asked about the charismatic Pentecostal background. I'm curious if we, the white churches I've been in, were in fact descended from the black church. I'm ordained in the assemblies of God. This is Brenda Burns. I'm ordained in the assemblies of God and our roots are traced to Azusa Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually bring out a great point. Um, I talk about in The Color of Compromise, the Azusa Street revival and how it first began as really a quite interracial movement, black and white folks together. This is California. You got all kinds of folks coming together and then very quickly 
you know, black leaders were stonewalled, and there you get the divergence in the formation of the Assemblies of God, which is predominantly white. You got Kojic, which is predominantly black, and those kinds of things. So if you look at the history, the, the, the sort of segregation creeps in pretty early on, but throughout U.S. history, any sort of Pentecostal or charismatic movement, because it depended on sort of a direct interaction with the Holy Spirit, was accessible by anyone. And there was a, 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 a very strong tradition of saying that if you, if you got the Holy Spirit, you're one of us, you can speak, you can teach, you know, you, you can be part of us. And that crossed racial and ethnic lines, that crossed gender lines. And so, yeah, that, that tradition is there. And it's something, again, as I mentioned at the, at the top of this, this conversation, that I wish the Black Church PBS special had pulled out more of, because there's incredible potential there uh, for learning, both historically and for applying in the contemporary day. Um, ooh, Lois, you said, how can some Christians defend racist Limbaugh? <laughs> You're putting me on the spot here. So Rush Limbaugh, the uh, conservative talk radio shock jock almost, died this week. And uh, the big fear online is how to speak about him now that he's dead. There's a, there's a vast sort of, you know, social faux pas in, quote unquote, speaking ill of the dead. You know, once somebody has died, you want to remember the best of their life and their legacy. But when it comes to somebody like Rush Limbaugh, who in many ways created an industry of misinformation, fear-mongering, hate, the Bible talks about the value of a good reputation, y'all. Talks about the value of a good reputation. And... When your legacy is one of fomenting division, fear of the other, using the most extreme terms and dehumanizing terms, when your profession is words, you know, live in such a way that people shouldn't have to debate how to talk about you after you're dead. That's all I have to say about that. Um, <laughs> Somebody asked about Aunt Jemima. They renamed it. I can't remember the name. But in 2020, one of the, some of the fallout from the racial justice uprisings was they took off the Aunt Jemima picture from the syrup bottles because it was playing on sort of black tropes about black people. And so um, Cornelia asks, uh, she said that people who have objected that say they've responded with two opinions. Number one, so if a white person endorses a product and their image is used, that isn't racism. The example that came to mind is like Paul Newman, Newman's own salad dressing, right? And so this person is saying, you know, if, if a white person's image is used on a product, that's not racism. Well, in the case of like Newman's own, that's his company. His name on it, duh, I mean, yeah. It's also not portraying an insulting caricature of Paul Newman or white people, right? Uh, whereas the Aunt Jemima character is sort of playing on the, on the Black Mammy character, which is sort of part of, part of the Lost Cause mythology. Uh, think about Gone with the Wind um, and the character Hattie McDaniel played. And it's the idea that, you know, black domestic servants who were mostly women uh, were all happy, content, had benevolent enslavers, all of that kind of a thing, which obviously covers the reality of the brutality and the exploitation they faced. So that's the difference, right? That's the difference. Um, yeah, we got a few more. Uh, trying to look at anything else. Donna asked, regarding chapter four, which is how to study the history of race, do you feel that the MAGA theme is based on a Whiggish interpretation of history? Y'all, I had so much fun geeking out over that. That was one of the things I had no idea coming, uh, 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 what it was when I came into grad school, but it was a, a, a term tossed around all the time. So I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what the heck it was. Uh, so I wouldn't be the only one in the classroom <laughs> who didn't know it. I wasn't the only one, but it felt like it. 
Um, so this Whiggish interpretation of history is, is sort of this idea of perpetual progress, inevitable progress, really. Just with the simple passage of time, things are going to get better, especially justice-wise. And there's a lot of history books that are popular precisely because they take this Whiggish view of history, because we want to tell ourselves a happy story. We want to have the happy ending, but history doesn't work like that. And so, um, so uh, do you feel that MAGA is based on a Whiggish interpretation of history? Yes and no. Um, I mean, a Whiggish interpretation is really about a sort of trajectory toward the future and, and always being one of perpetual progress and toward better things. MAGA is about looking back at a, a, a bygone era, which is imagined. That's the point. And, and you name this precisely um, that uh, Joy Hughes McDonald commented on it. It says, I do think there's a nostalgia to the post-World War II years that make people think it was better. And, and you're precisely right, and particularly that era. So understand that the mid-20th century and post-World War II is when you get the rise of the modern middle class for some, namely for uh, white people, where you could have the single uh, breadwinner male, where you had the stay-at-home mother, where you had the 2.5 kids and the white picket fence, right? So, so, th so there's this nostalgia of that's the true America, that's the American dream, that's what we have to get back to. But you never actually talk about the fact that you know things like the GI Bill were were discriminatory in their application because black GIs who had served in the same military risked the same things, spent time away from their family. They didn't get the more home mortgage loans. They didn't get the 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 subsidies to go to school and, and college and and earn better jobs and things like that, right? So the middle class was reserved for some and a few. And also uh, this idea that um, those post-World War II years were, you got to understand the demographics. The nation was overwhelmingly white. And so it was almost easier to sort of ignore racial problems when your demographic is quantitatively so large. And that has changed over the past 50 or 60 years, right? And, and so the youth, already majority minority, already there's no clear majority, it's a plurality of races and ethnicities. And that's coming toward the whole national stage in, in, in the 2040s about. So, so it's a lot easier to look back. It's a lot easier to have um, consensus, which is more of an illusion than a reality, but an imagined consensus in a more racially homogenous environment. So all of that was, was very good. And then the last question I'll get to tonight. Uh, Donna Haley Lachance, since the black church has been such a safe place for BIPOC, black indigenous people of color, um, how open might it be to having um, white folks come through the door? How open might black churches be uh, to having white folks come through? I mean, the simple answer is very open. Open enough that a, a white supremacist who would later murder nine people was welcomed into a Bible study at Mother Emanuel AME in, in Charleston, South Carolina. Open enough that when um, white people come in the door, there's curiosity for sure, but there's also an incredible welcoming there. Um, it is open. That's one question or, or issue. Uh, the other one, which I think is even more salient, is you know, what does it do to the practice of the black church? Will it cease to be a safe place for black people or um, even apart just from black churches, if it's a, a predominantly comprised of racial and ethnic minorities, will it cease, cease to be that safe haven where you can kind of let down your hair, sing your songs, know that you'll be understood? Um, I've said this before. Looking at the history and even the present, I am not really worried about a flood of white people going to predominantly black and brown churches. It hasn't happened and <laughs> is not likely to happen. Um, so if you you know, occasionally get the white family that uh, is persuaded or, or, or just wants to uh, become a member of the black church, I don't ever think it's going to be so much of a flood that it drastically changes the dynamics. It could in isolated cases. I, just, I don't think it'll be a national trend. Uh, I think you'll be one of a couple families there and it ain't going to change much at all. Uh, but they will welcome you with open arms. The other issue is, is what it really is, is 
um, leadership and priorities, right? So at The Witness, a lot of our audience is white, but we are unabashedly black-centered, we are black-led, we are black-founded, and so white people can come along, but it's, it's gonna be the kind of white person who is ready to be led by people who are different. It's gonna be the kind of white person who is ready to, to um, adjust to a different ecclesiastical tradition and not coming in and changing it to tailor and cater to what they're used to. And those are the kind of folks, those are the kind of white folks and Asian folks and Latino folks uh, who come and, and glean from the witness. And we remain black-centered and black-led, and I think that's the critical portion. Y'all have been great. Thank you for riding with me. It's been about an hour, and I'm going to let you go. I know it's late for you uh, East Coast folks, so thanks for staying up. We are hunkered down here in the Delta. We have had, I've been here in the South for almost 20 years. I've never seen snow like this. Uh, most of the time, it's a quarter of an inch thick, and it's melted within an hour or two. This, we've gotten like six to eight inches, and it's sticking, but we've had a great time. My son is Southern born and bred, and so this is his first time in deep snow. Uh, so he's loving it, and we've got heat, we've got electricity, we're okay. We're lifting up our, our folks in Texas, hoping y'all get power and lights and heat soon. Uh, but thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week. I've also got a new newsletter jamartisby.substack.com. Subscribe to that, jamartisby.substack.com. I think that's it. Go to bed or have a drink or do whatever you do to unwind your life. See you next time. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.